0: Welcome to season two of the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's going on, beer lovers? What's up? How are we doing? Oh, I didn't say what's cracking. You did not. What's cracking, beer lovers? There, I did it. (laughs) <laughs> Can't break tradition. Can't break tradition. <laughs> <Get> you, uh, <laughs> you really were Catholic for a while. Oh, whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa buddy. Uh, I mean, uh, loosely, yeah, I guess a little bit. You were Catholic for a while. Uh, loosely, a little bit, I was. Um. Anyways, dude, it has been quite the day, man. I could use a beer. Well, tell me about the one you got. I'm super excited
1: about this one. I'm super yeah, I, I was gonna drink that one, <laughs> but Clayton called it first.
0: Uh yeah, sorry. Um so first of all, it's a hazy.
1: Yeah, which I, I know. Mm. Um,
0: but it is from Saloon Door Brewing in Webster, Texas. What up? Shout out. That's like forty five minutes from us now 146. Not even. Yeah, maybe not even. Yeah. Not not far, not far. Um, but this is the Doc Hoppaday. And if you know... If yeah. you know your Old West history... <laughs> your Old you, West history. Yeah. You know a guy named Doc Holliday. Yeah. He was portrayed by Val Kilmer in Tombstone. Tombstone. One of the greatest Westerns ever made, in my opinion. Um, and so I'm very excited for this beer. Is it, I, it's a
1: cool... Yeah, it's a cool, it, like, storytelling element of the branding.
0: Yeah, you can see... Uh, you guys on the camera, that it the face of Hopaday is a hop bud, but he's got a mustache, he's got a mustache and a little soul patch, and a cowboy hat, and a red bandana. And that's doc. That, that appeases to uh, to my redneck roots. <laughs> 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 so I'm very excited about it. I don't know what the hop blend is. I tried to look it up, I couldn't find it, but it's 6.8 uh, alcohol by volume. So I'm excited. Oh, and it says the tastiest dram in the West. Oh,
1: that's a clever addition, right there.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so I have the uh, mini boss by Eureka Heights. Eureka Heights is in Houston, Texas. Shout out, H Town. Um, this is Citra and Mosaic Hops join forces in this fruity IPA to warp your senses to Aroma Land. Mm. The fifth dimension of flavor awaits. Uh, It is twelve ounces and six point eight ABV. Love it. I um, I really like Eureka Heights beers. Um, they're one of the smaller breweries. Wow, they're not really small either, though. Um, I guess they're one of the less prominent ones for my personal palate. I have spent more time drinking like Carbach and Mm -hmm. Eighth Wonder and um, St. Arnold. Wait, but Eureka it, Heights is also a very prominent brewery in Texas, in uh,
0: Houston. I, just a little side note, not to take away from Eureka Heights and, and the, the glorious beer that they do produce. It's fantastic. But um, I realized earlier today we have never done a Carbach on here. Have I not done the Hopadillo on here? No.
1: Man, that's one of my favorite beers of all time.
0: Yeah, I I was looking through the my beer log this morning and I was just thinking about Houston Brewer all the Houston breweries. Yeah. They hit like maybe three or four. Yeah. And Carbach was not one of them. Golly. We need to we, do better about our Houston breweries. Yeah,
1: we'll have to change that. We have so much great beer here in the city of Houston. We should we should just do like a whole tour of like just Houston brews.
0: I think that's something I think that's next on my list. Yeah. I'm going to start collecting beer from different breweries and we're going to.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. All right. Anyways, cheers, buddy. Cheers,
0: man. Ooh, geez. Yeah. That's good. It's solid. No other feedback than that. I mean, it, it's doing exactly what I want a hazy to do. Yeah. So, like, I'm... I don't know. Everything that I want out of a hazy, which I've talked about hazies before, it's doing. It's it's bright. It's citrusy. Um, very well balanced, though. Um, kind of floral. It's doing what I want a hazy to do. It's hitting all the right spots. Uh, I mean, man... Six eight, like just yeah, yeah. very middle just of the road, just like just very good at what it's doing.
1: Or order up a hazy, and that's what it's supposed to taste like. Yeah, that.
0: Yeah. It, if anybody tells me that, like, I want an IPA, yeah, and this is available, this is a good one for you to try.
1: Yeah, um, I'm also going to grade mine as a six eight, um, specifically because um, it's a very great beer. Uh, Clayton and I have kind of decided six, eight, seven range is like the average, like just really good quality beer. So like on our scale, we want eights and nines to be like phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm also going six, eight. It is a very good quality beer. My one note is if you typically find yourself complaining about grass tasting Ah, ipas the citra hops in this and definitely pushing it to like grassroots territory
0: you you know uh, i kind of have to agree actually a little bit on mine as well i had never thought about that because i like that note
1: yeah me too but like a lot of people don't like the grass flavor that that is a very fair you can definitely tell when hops are more citrus and floral based and when they're more grass and dirt based
0: there is a slight um grassiness right there on the back end uh, I was trying to figure out what it was, and you said it. It clicked. Yeah, same for mine.
1: Yeah, it's it's grassy um, from the Citra hops. If you like that flavor, it's great. I, I personally like that flavor. I you know grew up in ranching areas, eating like weeds as you walk around like a you know farmer in overalls. Uh,
0: we really did do that as kids, though. Like yeah. that's not a joke. He's not making a funny. No, no, like no. Yeah, we yeah. we legitimately walked around with weeds in our mouths as kids. <laughs> yeah, that was
1: life. Yeah, that was life. Uh, So, yeah, I personally like uh, I, that flavor like kind of nostalgic for me, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it yeah, I like it. It doesn't bother me.
0: It doesn't bother me either.
1: But it's worth noting because I could see how people wouldn't like it. So okay. let's talk
0: about some theological anthropology.
1: Yeah. So Ben and Randy have titled this chapter Humanity and Sin. <sighs> I wish they would have. Titled this chapter, "Sin and Flourishing," um, because their whole concept of humanity is about human flourishing, mm-hmm. uh, which they are using as a like synonymous metaphor. Excuse me, a synonymous metaphor for life, and so they begin by introducing this idea of like humanity and sin, or what's also called. Um, harmadiology, like the study of sin. But what it ends up being is it does end up being this conversation of anthropology because of the way in which the story, the Bible, first talks about us. Yeah. This entire chapter is dedicated to the conversation of what does Genesis 1 through 3 mean, what did it mean back then? Yep. And what does it mean now? And they begin by talking about Gregory of Nazianzus and Apollinarianism. So
0: before we go there, oh, actually, okay. yes. we should probably, and I don't feel comfortable doing this, I have a general understanding, but I don't think I could communicate a definition of theological anthropology.
1: Theological anthropology is the theological perspective of studying the Anthropos.
0: Mm, The man. The human. The human, but like. Yeah, yeah. the
1: human. So theological anthropology is the theological perspective of studying the human or the, the, the study of the humans.
0: Right. Okay. Cool.
1: Dope. Okay. So Gregory of Nazianzus and Apollinarianism. Basically, what you're about to have is you're about to have this theological conversation about the person of Jesus, um, and specifically with the Council of Constantinople in 381. The main problem here is Apollinarius, which, if you didn't know, uh, is quite interesting. (laughs) Um, Apollinarius um worked on the Nicene Creed. Yeah. Um and signed off on it. Yep. And Ben and Randy like to note in here, uh, being orthodox in one area, even a central one, does not automatically lead you to be orthodox in other areas. And I'm like, <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Ain't that the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, what ends up being the problem is Apollinarius doesn't he doesn't want to make Jesus fully human. Right. Because he well what ends up happening here is the the question is is Jesus fully God mm-hmm and fully human, or is he more God than human, or more human than God?
0: Right. We talked about a a lot of this on our Christology Christology. episodes. We absolutely did. So you can go
1: back to that. But Apollinarianism is a little bit different because it's later, and we didn't really talk about it. But what Apollinarianism is, is it's the idea that Jesus was not fully human. Right. Now, I will say, I personally don't think that Constantinople is like a binding uh, council for orthodoxy. That's unique to me. Church tradition would say I'm wrong. You know, all those things. That's just me. Um, I think the Nicene Creed is the one that's binding on orthodoxy, but I also think that it's my job as a Christian to say, hey, this is orthodoxy, but I don't think that orthodoxy is naturally synonymous with salvation. Right. Right. Um, so I do think those need to be distinguished because I'm not the judge of who's saved. Right. I don't know that. That's between them and Jesus. So with that, um, I don't think that Constantinople is like a binding one, but most of tradition would say that. And the main thing with Constantinople is the church rejects Apollinarianism because of their soteriology. Mm notice these things we don't just they're not just rejecting it for no reason now i'm also going to go ahead and preface i'm very biased towards this because this is my soteriological position so while i don't think that it's binding on christian orthodoxy i will say it's absolutely the way in which
0: i feel yeah um and also the conversation that we're about to have we've have we've done an entire episode on we actually did an entire we've series. done a two part
1: series with the author of this book yeah. on the topic of theosis/deification slash right
0: we we have done this we actually did an entire series on uh, soteriology in general we did um and this conversation about theosis deification uh participationist theology or salvation or however you talk about that yeah um we we did a whole two-part series, and it's great. You should go back and listen to it. Yeah, it was great.
1: Um, so theosis is the metaphorical concept of humans becoming God through grace yep. in divine likeness and ascent. Um, not in a way that we become in competition with the Trinity, but just in a way that... The uncorrupted took on corruption in order to elevate us to a status, a nature of uncorrupted. Um, The way the early church said it was uh, God became man so that man might become like God. Uh, And so if Jesus is not fully human, then we can't get that. Resurrected body of Jesus is not deified body of human. We can't really get there. Um, And so that's why they've chosen to reject it. And I love what um, Ben says here at the very bottom of this page. In this section, he says, Sharing in the life of God, a.k.a. theosis or deification, means experiencing true human flourishing in relationship with God, ourselves, and others. Becoming like God makes us better humans, fully human, And this is why it matters that Christ was fully human and fully God. Once again, I personally don't believe that Constantinople is binding upon Christian orthodoxy. However, I do affirm Constantinople, even though, you know, I don't think I have to. Um, Now, everybody understands that the story begins with... The world is created by God, and in Genesis chapter 3, humanity somehow in the story of Adam and Eve messes it up because they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God tells them not to eat of. Now, this is something that I'm going to spend a minute and I might get a little preachy on. Ben and Randy say right here, one of the most Fundamental affirmations about human identity within the Christian tradition is that we are made in the image of God.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Stop. That. Yes, that. Um, If at any point, this is my personal belief, Mm -hmm. if at any point you come across a theological position and you want to affirm it, maybe check yourself by asking, does this affirm and liberate the image of God or does this oppress and violate the image of God? That is one of the first things we are told. The first thing we are told is that God made what we now know as the world in some way and that what he made is good. And that he made humanity. And humanity was very good. Yep. That it was made in his image and their image. Male and female, both genders. And then Genesis 2 tells us why. Mm. Because he wanted relationship and fellowship with humanity here in a place of paradise. A place that he yeah. knew or thought that we would enjoy. And then chapter 3 is where we mess it up. That is the entire story uh, of Genesis 1 through 3. And so one of the first things that we are told is that God made everything. And of the things that he made, the most important is the image of God. Yeah, Humanity. And so I personally believe that we should always be questioning and affirming our beliefs through the lens of does this affirm the image of God? That's the foundational premise that God told me, Yeah. is that the human is important. That human flourishing is that. If Christians are not affirming the image of God, we are not pursuing human flourishing. Mm. Done. End of story. Over. Conversation done. That's not what Jesus would do. Okay, I'm not preaching anymore. (laughs) I'm done. It's a good Uh, sermon, Pastor Cullen. Thanks. (laughs) Um, So in this same vein, I was just talking about humans being made in the image of God. Uh, Ben talks a lot about what that means. He gives uh, three different views of how people have traditionally viewed that. Um we're already 18 and a half minutes. I question whether or not how valuable this is or not.
0: It is whoa, whoa, whoa. It is well, very valuable information.
1: Yes, that it's very valuable information. And once again, I think everybody should buy this book because it is very thought provoking in the ways in which you make you do your theological constructions. Yes. But I'm questioning how valuable it is based on the other things that I also know I have to get through uh by the end of this podcast. Um, I'll briefly hit them. There are three of them. The substantive view, the functional view, and the relational view of what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, the, the substantive view is what he says is the most widely held position. Um, it's a much more philosophical position and much less theological, but it it is the position... That it reflects human possession of a soul or a rational mind. So, the substance view is what is the human consist of? What's the substance of the human being made in the image of God? Uh, A human rational mind and a human soul is what most people do. However, and they note this if you're doing strict, like biblical based theology, You cannot do that because the text does not give you anything of that regard. Minus maybe the breathing in of life into Adam, um, but that's spirit, not soul. Mm. Um, So, And there's nothing about the mind. So you really do struggle uh, exegetically with a substantive view. A functional view um, is that... God created his image so that he may rule over them or that so that they may rule over his creation as his stewards. And the functional view means that, so if you remember, Clayton, in Genesis chapter one, the first thing that God makes is light. Right. Um, The earth is formless and void. Right. Clayton, if you were going to pick a matter that is formless, unless you put it in a container, what is a substance that is formless?
0: I don't really know how to answer that question, but I guess, like, oxygen in a way? Like, breath? Like, wind? Like that oh, sort actually, of like that's a good point. Air thing? Yeah,
1: like atmosphere? Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Uh, yeah, that... Um, also, water. Okay. Liquid. Um, it's not until a few verses later that, God's, that the text says, and God separated the waters. I think this is Genesis 1-6. Don't quote me on that. But the next thing that God does, the next action that God takes, is he separates the waters. Hey, Clayton, where did those waters come from?
0: No idea. Oh,
1: no idea. This is why the Does ancient. Say it. This is why the ancient Hebrew midrash would not say that God created ex nihilo, right? As Isaiah did, mm-hmm. they would say God happened upon chaos, water, which historically Israelite people are afraid of. Right, they are not sea people. Yeah. They do not get on boats. This is why it is a major deal in the Book of Jonah that he is swallowed by the whale, and notice. When he, go back and read the book of Jonah, when he is vomited up, this is a fish big enough to swallow a large man or a man. This is not a small fish. Clayton, do you remember where Jonah is vomited up onto? A beach. The land. Yeah. Do big fish go close enough to the water, to the land, to vomit someone on dry land? No. No. Oh, so what? We have some creative storytelling here about chaos and restoration. Oh, okay, I see. When I choose against God, there's still grace for restoration. He puts me back on land. Okay, I see. Yes, God happens upon water and restores chaos. And the functional view of being made in the image of God in the language of to rule is to say, as Ben and Randy say, in the creation account, it seems that chaos was still over most of the earth except in the garden, and the task of humans was to bring the divine order of the garden to the rest of the earth. To the extent humans fulfill that vocation, they are embodying the image of God.
0: Hmm. Interesting. That is the
1: functional view. The relational view is that, as they simply say, God created humanity to be in relationship, not just with themselves, Trinity, but also with each other, male and female. Bless, like be fruitful and multiply, family. Um, In the curses in Genesis 3, family is now painful. Women now bear children in in pain. Right. Um, And so family becomes this place of our most joy in healthy ones human flourishing, but it also becomes this place of pain. So the relational view is the image of God is about being in relationship with other people. Um, the way Ben says it is, the immediate focus of the passage is the family, husband, wife, and lots of children. What makes us fully human is the wider human community standing in relation to God together. As we are in relationship with one another, and of course with God, we must fully reflect the image of God.
0: So, I- I know we didn't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I do have to ask this question. Do you think that there is some sort of blend between the functional and the relational view?
1: Um, to some extent, and you're, you're kind of forcing me to jump ahead, but that's okay. Sorry. Uh, well, we're about to get there anyways. I do believe in the functional view. Um, I more so believe in the relational view. I don't. Hold to the substantive view. That feels real philosophical theology to me. Yeah. Which, don't hear me. I definitely do my fair share. Do not think that I'm poo-pooing on that. I just don't need it in this text. Yeah. Like, that's just how I personally feel. Um, I definitely affirm the functional view, but more so in like, almost in like a prophetic way.
0: Okay. Um, Like, this is going to be perfect peace, paradise?
1: Well, more so in what is to come. Because the first thing, and this is me, not necessarily Ben. The first thing that the word rule is used over is it's in Genesis 118, and it's used for the stars, So if it's truly just about functionality, we weren't actually given the dominion to rule. The stars were. Mm. Which is real interesting that those wise men from the east, Persians, pagans, um, that notice and bring gifts to Jesus, Messiah. Based
0: um, on the star patterns. They
1: know that the Messiah was born based on the stars. Don't miss that. Don't let fundamentalism tell you that, that the stars are witchcraft. Be careful. Read your Bible a little bit better. Um, but with
0: this. I'm actually shocked that you went there. Anyways, we're moving on.
1: We Yeah, we should. Well, I mean, yeah. It's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Um, fundamentalism, man. They get me every time. Um What was I talking about? Oh, I was talking about um, the functional view. Yeah. So if it is really to rule, then we were not given the authority to rule. The stars were first given the authority to rule. And so the way that I like to think about it is that that command to rule is prophetic over what we were once instituted, Mm. which was to rule over human flourishing, Yeah. which for us, which you're making me jump ahead to, which is totally fine, excuse me, is to manage the experiences of sin and death in the world. Mm. That's our role as Christians, Yeah, is to manage the experiences of death and sin in the world and the ways in which we contribute to them.
0: So in our pursuit of divine likeness slash being made in the image of God, Our purpose is to fight the images of sin and death. Correct. Um, Which is so, And
1: hopefully overpower them with images of grace, love, and kindness. Which
0: feels very much... Because you can't have the functional view and pursue that without relationship and vice versa.
1: Correct. So you can, but the way in which you get there
0: can... There really are three categories, but... Two of them can overlap in different ways. Correct. Okay, that now, answers my question.
1: Now we're about to get into a conversation. I mean, so you know, I already talked about the ways in which these two things stand in contrast: sin and death, and life and flourishing. Right these These things now stand in contrast because of uh, the fall. Ben gives, well, yeah. Ben ends up talking about this being, and what do I always say? This is a story. Genesis 3 introduces the problem to the story. Jesus becomes the solution to said problem. Yeah. Sin is not the problem. Death is the problem. Death is brought about by sin, so sin becomes a part of the conversation. But death is the problem. Personified death, which means that life and liberation are the solution. Makes sense why Ben would offer a quote from James Cone, the father of black liberation theology. Yeah. This is how Ben summarizes uh, Dr. Cone's comment. Christians do not have to convince the world of its brokenness with regard to individuals, communities, and the world. I want to spend a moment here. Um, Hey, Clayton, when we were growing up in church, didn't you feel like that's exactly what the church, the Christians tried to do? Is convince people that they were broken and sinful?
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: When you look around the world, don't you see enough brokenness? Don't you see enough death? Yeah. I mean, golly, are we not watching death daily in the Ukraine? Sin and death are everywhere. We don't have to convince anybody the world's broken. Yeah. They don't need to be told they suck.
0: Hey, man, I I wish somebody would look at a preacher one day and say, hey, bro, you're preaching to the choir.
1: Golly, bro. Yeah,
0: like for real, for real.
1: Yeah. Like, Uh, We don't have to do it this way.
0: I've not actually thought about that before, but that is very true. Yeah. We
1: don't have to do it that way. I've
0: not thought about it that way.
1: Nobody needs to be told the world's broken. We can look around and see it. They need to be told there's hope in life. Yeah. Done. Okay. Now historical views of sin. This is real hard for me. I personally, once again, all of this comes from 481. It's very difficult. Um, Let me say, I'm going to work through these three categories. I'm going to give my own perspective of how to deal with this information at the end of these three categories. But you have three categories for how to deal with the effects of Adam's sin. So this would be called original sin, that the sins of Adam and Eve have been carried down because in Genesis 3, there are curses given. Curses given to Adam, curses given to Eve, which talk about pain and sin and childbirth, curse given to the serpent, and curse given to the ground, creation itself. So there are effects of Adam's sin. The question is how far do they go? Three main main veins of thought. Pelagianism, which has been rejected by the church, the Greek patristic uh, thought, and then the Augustinian thought. So let's talk about it this way. Pelagianism was rejected because Pelagius did not affirm excuse me he overemphasized free will. So he did not he did not affirm that the person at all had been corrupted in any way by the effects of Adam's sin.
0: So did not believe in original sin.
1: Yeah but not even in any kind of way. Like literally Adam sinned and that was Adam's responsibility. We We are not corrupted by that, nor do we hold any accountability
0: for that. Mm, Okay.
1: Then on the other side of the spectrum is you have the Augustinian view, which is now most commonly summarized in reformed views, Mm -hmm. Calvinistic views, um, that the person has been fully corrupted, totally depraved by the effects of Adam's sin, and they are liable or they are held accountable because God must choose in whom in which he wants to save. So they are held, they are not only affected or impacted by the effects of Adam's sin, but they are also held accountable for the sins they did not commit. Yeah. In the middle is what Ben and Randy call the Greek patristic, which is to say that the earth has been corrupted that the individual in some combat sin has corrupted the experience of the individual, but they are not held accountable for their own, for any sins except those which they commit, which I will also say, um, Ben and Randy make a really good point that this is actually present in a lot of Baptistic traditions, um, most commonly summarized according to the veil of the age of accountability. Mm, mm-hmm. A child yeah. is not held accountable for the sins in which they commit until they've reached an age to comprehend said sin or good from evil. Yeah, That is a perfect example of what the Greek, Greek patristic thought on original sin is. Do you have any thoughts or questions about any of that summarization?
0: I, I don't have any questions. Um the The age of accountability thing for me has always been something that I, that you throw in the category of like the Trinity. Like we don't actually have this in Scripture, but this is something that actually kind of makes sense, like logically thinking. Um, but I remember whenever I first learned about the age of accountability, I I was trying to figure out what that age was like where is that line and i think sitting here today if there is such a thing i'm not making a statement either way but if that is a thing um i feel like it has to flow with the person's growth and maturity as a person probably i think
1: that's probably i feel like things. it would
0: have to because i mean not everybody grows in the same way. And some people mature faster than others. And there's lots of factors that go into all of that. Correct. I think that it would have to depend, which makes that conversation even more complicated.
1: It does. Um, I don't think any of this conversation for anyone is simple. Let
0: me oh go yeah. And say oh yeah, 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 yeah.
1: The, the, The reason I ask if you had any questions is because Ben then moves into a section he calls the heterodox imbalance. This is where I want to talk. I'll be honest. I don't perfectly fit into any of these boxes. However, Ben makes this comment. Well, I'm actually going to read a few sentences here. We will not adjudicate between the Augustinian and Greek patristic views since different traditions will find different evidence compelling. What unites both views is their ability to maintain the balance between the creational goodness and the fallenness Mm. of sin. Mm. As with the other doctrines, orthodoxy is found in a both-and balance rather than a stark either-or. Several heterodox positions have been excluded from Orthodox Christianity because they do not maintain that balance.
0: Love it. Love that.
1: My personal balance is this. I believe that God happened upon chaos. I believe that God is good. And I believe that God ordered said chaos. I do believe in some kind of functional view that there is chaos outside of the paradise of the garden. Um, I do think that helps explain like the fear of going into the land of Nod with Cain and I think it does help alleviate lots of other theological conundrums. Um, I don't think it's the only way to deal with those conundrums by any means, but it's a way in which I'm considering dealing with them. Um, And I believe that God created this place good i believe that humanity was created very good and i believe that in some way humanity messed it up um in humanity messing it up i believe that all of existence was corrupted and i believe that humanity when humanity is held accountable for said sin at whatever time that happens um they become corrupted but I also believe that corruption now just exists. That this is why we have need of Christ the victor. To overcome, claim victory over the corruption. And so, existence itself is just corrupted. And so when a person is born into corrupted existence, they are corrupted. Sure but yet they are not held accountable for the corruption they were born into. In the same way, I do not hold anyone accountable for the family they were born into, the gender they were born with, or the race that they were born into, because none of us have a choice in any of that. None of us get to pick who our parents are. Mm. None of us get to pick what country we're born in. Nobody gets to pick what socioeconomic class we were born into. Yeah. You don't get to pick anything of that. It is not your fault that you exist in this world. However, you are a person made in the image of God, designed, beloved by God, and designed for human flourishing. That is the message of Christ. That is the message of the gospel, that there is a way for each and every human to experience human flourishing. Um, And so, in a conversation of balance, I don't think that you have to fit into one of these pretty boxes that Ben and Randy have given us with Pelagianism or Greek Patristic or Augustine, Because if you've read those guys, which I have, they got followers that don't look exactly like them in any camp. Pelagianism is very much so prominent in a lot of boomers because of modernity. Like, it's a, it's an easy one to believe in in, a, in modernity. And so I think... What I'm getting at here is the only thing that matters here is balance. That is what we always say. If you find yourself in extremes, in in any yeah. conversation, you've probably went too far. Yeah. The beauty of all of this is in the balance that there is corruption. And the reason in which corruption matters, the reason you must have corruption is because if you don't have corruption, you have no need for grace. This is why Pelagius was rejected because if you don't believe in corruption, then you don't actually need grace in order to experience salvation. One of the, um, one of the metaphors that Pelagius used was a rock tied to a bird. That sin was like a rock tied to a bird. That um, the bird would not be able to fly immediately. But with enough attempts, enough practice, they would get enough strength to overcome the rock on their own strength. There's no need for grace. There's no need for divine intervention if you can do it on your own. Hmm. That's why Pelagius is rejected. You need this balance between corruption and restoration. That is the message of human flourishing and how the ways in which Christ is overcoming uh, the issues of death and sin in a broken and fallen world in this, to use the theological language, this post-lapsarian world that we're all waiting for Christ to restore eschatologically. Now, that's the macro picture. Next week, we get to look at the micro picture of the actual human being made up mind,
0: body, and soul. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.